pay transparency is said to be fairer for all. But is there reason to worry about what might happen if everyone knows what everybody else gets paid? I'm Nigel Cassidy and this is the CIPD podcast. Well, thanks to pay transparency, we know that Gary Lineker earns a little bit more than an entire choir that the BBC have planned to act, uh, but has been saved for now in the face of a furore. Uh, now, I don't know if Match of the Day calms your soul, more than 20 singers performing Brahms' German Requiem, but uh, what we can be sure of is that going public on salaries is a big deal for any organisations, as it is for job seekers and existing workers who discover what others are getting. I was surprised to see almost two-thirds of UK employees just surveyed said they'd be happy to share their own salary details if it meant better pay equity. And that was Generation Zers especially. Now, that's interesting because I thought we British hate talking about what we're paid or money generally. So how do you decide how far to go with pay transparency? How do you manage the likely fallout when your staff get salary envy or quit for a better paid post with your rival? With me to unravel all that and more, an HR director with experience in senior roles in financial services and for major retailers. A fan on LinkedIn says she's objective, impartial, supportive and fun. Well, we'll take that. That's Karen Jackson, HR director at Reed. Hello. Hi. Uh, Gemma Bullivant is an executive coach and reward consultant with hands-on experience as a board-level HR director. She says without a clear strategy, pay and benefits decisions will be inconsistent and ad hoc. And we don't want that, do we, Gemma? Hello. Hello. And from the home team, who better than the advisor who directs the CIPD's own research on performance and rewards, it's Charles Cotton. Hi. Hi. So, Charles, first things first, um, what do we mean by pay transparency? I mean, is there a definition? It rather depends on what you mean by pay and what you mean by transparency. So, in part, it's going to depend on what the all, I suppose, people managers um, and the organisation defines as pay. So, for example, does it include employer pension contributions, bonuses or benefits in kind? But this definition is also going to be influenced um, by what others um, define as pay. So, for example, internally, you have employees, you're going to have unions, the remuneration committee, etc., each with their own understanding of, of pay. And then externally, you're going to have stakeholders with their own definitions or understandings of pay. So, for example, the EHRC has their own definition of pay for when it comes to gender pay gap reporting. Uh, the HMRC has quite a wide definition of pay uh, when it comes to tax purposes. Uh, the Low Pay Commission um, has its own definition of pay for when it comes to minimum wage purposes. And then you've got the other bodies. So, for instance, in Rugby Union, the body that looks at the English Premiership, and they have their own definition for um, salary cap purposes. And then it kind of depends on what you mean by transparency. So you can have transparency of outcomes, i.e. Who, who gets what, or you can have transparency around processes, i.e. how pay award decisions are being made, by whom, by what, you know, when and, and why. And you also can have um, transparency of context. So what do people getting the same or similar jobs with the same employer get or what do these same jobs get with other employers or uh, what do employees um, doing different jobs within the same organization get and then there's the issue about 
who you should be transparent, you know, transparent with. I mean, is it going to be employees, potential employees, the media, unions, as well as what level? Um, so, for instance, one extreme, you could have individual levels where each person knows each other's pay. Or you can have aggregate levels, so each person knows how their com pay compares to their pay grade or how it compares like um, against their gender. Or you can have a mixture, so some individuals, so for instance, in organi large organisations, you may list everybody's pay who, you know, who's a board member, but um, the rest of the workforce, that kind of pay information is um, kept at an aggregate level. But hopefully answering all these questions will help you create a strategy about how you talk about pay uh, within and outside the organisation. I guess there wouldn't be a simple answer to that. And uh, <laughs> No, it's rather like wrong. Hitchhiker's Guide um, to the Galaxy, isn't it? You know, a life, a universe and everything. Karen Jackson, there's also the question of where the transparency is blown, if you like, if it's in a, an advertisement or if uh, a candidate is asked what they uh, are paid. Uh, now, everybody knows all UK employers with 250 or more staff have to publish gender pay gap just past the deadline the last few days. Um, I know there was a government pilot last year. Employers were required to list salary information in their job ads and stop asking candidates what they're paid. I mean, is this, are those two changes where we might go with pay transparency? I think it's down to very much what Charles said. Um, it is dependent on what each individual organisation wants to do and how transparent they want to be, because it means different things for di different companies. I mean, I think there are absolute clear benefits when it comes to talent attraction. Research from read.co.uk found that four in five job seekers, so about 78%, are less likely to apply for a job without a salary on it. So I'm interpreting that as keeping salary secret is therefore likely to leave candidates skipping past uh, your job adverts. And, and actually building on that, almost half felt that actually keeping the salary secret would neg negatively impact on their perception of that company. So being open and honest about salaries, your advertising definitely leads to attracting more talent. Do you actually tell your clients to definitely put the pay on or if they don't want to, uh, do you have to leave it off? We advise to, but ultimately it comes down to that client's preference um, and depending on their particular pay strategy from a transparency perspective because there's so many different ends of the spectrum to having complete transparency where everybody's pay is public or having really defined pay policies and everything that falls in between that. You know, we, we know in a HR perspective, the role title of HRBP can be paid anything from 25,000 to over 150,000. Uh, and, you know, that isn't helpful. Uh, if a salary is not declared within that advert, for example's sake, because I may choose to not apply for an advert if it's below a certain level. And uh, that's you know a personal frustration of mine. So we do apply we do say to our clients, absolutely this will guarantee you the most applications if you're clear and transparent on the pay or the pay range that's applicable to this particular vacancy. Now, Karen Jackson's made the case, uh, Gerald Boulevant, uh, for transparency, but there are all kinds of reasons why organisations, why employers worry about this. And uh, certainly pay transparency has the real potential when it comes in to upset people, isn't it? To damage morale, pits worker against worker. I mean, why should anybody perform at their highest level if they know somebody that they might think doesn't pull their weight is getting paid more than them? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think it boils down in some ways to a lack of comfort in being able to talk about pay 
clearly and transparently. Um, and that's informed by either not having a clear and transparent methodology where you perhaps are carrying legacy inequities that you'd really rather hope nobody you know, ever notices through to not even knowing whether you've got those um, inequities. And I often work with, with clients who haven't really got round to analysing their data in that way and really understanding where their um, employees lie within the, within the pay spectrum. But I mean, it could take, it could take, I mean, not just weeks, it could take years to sort your pay out, to um, bring people up to a level or to not give somebody else a pay rise, to put it bluntly. Um, it's, it actually could take a long time to get your house in order, in order for pay transparency to do its work. Absolutely. And that's, that's sometimes a reason why uh, employers don't even start, because it seems like such a long long task, a long, you know, a, 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 a difficult and lengthy process. But the flip side to that, of course, is that if you don't start, you're never going to get there. And sometimes there's a reluctance that if we start on this um, process of understanding it, that somehow there's a, a budget imperative that we have to correct everything within the first year. And often a phased approach to gradually bringing a, 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 more, a more structured, balanced approach to, to pay it, it is where companies end up. But if you don't start, you're not going to get there. And Charles Cotton, are you going to have to start? Is this coming? We know that several states in the US, the EU does this. Some Scandinavian countries have always had pay transparency. What, if anything, is pushing organisations into becoming more transparent? Well, as has been mentioned, there's obviously the business, I suppose, opportunities in that you can set yourself out in the labour market and find it easier to attract talent. Also, pay transparency helps in communicating you know, what the organisation is trying to achieve and what it wants its employees to achieve and how it's going to reward and recognise them for efforts. And if you are not being transparent about that, then it, obviously it's going to have an impact. But yes, there are also external pressures. Organisations um, have moved along um, publishing um, data by gender in the UK. Um, some organisations are going a step further now looking at ethnicity, but there are also external pressures as well. Um, organisations that have operations in the US are saying, well, because of pay transparency there, we're going to have to start thinking about how that affects on the UK, but also about our global operations more widely as well. You know, how's that going to have an influence there? And similar, as you mentioned, um, the EU is also forcing organisations to consider um, how far they go in terms of transparency. Certainly the sort of core effect is to uh, help with inequality. But we did quite an interesting little poll, just not a very scientific one, but um, at CIPD, we asked people, would pay transparency make inequality a thing of the past? 20% said yes, 5% said no, 70% said it's more complicated. So Karen Jackson, this does sort of slightly cast some doubt on whether moving to pay transparency even achieves narrowing those pay gaps for the disadvantaged, uh, certainly in the first instance. I agree. Uh, I agree with the 70, that 70%. I think it can help um, because it can help to expose pay inequality. Um, but 
uh, it can't help in isolation. It's got to go hand in hand with lots of other elements. And also when we talk pay transparency, again, it's how long or how wide uh, or how clear does that organisation want to be from a transparency perspective. Um, it won't be the fix in isolation for pay inequality. It will go a long way or it will go as far as that pay transparency enables it to do. What really needs to happen is that business need to tackle the more underlying issues which cause uh, pay inequality. Um, there was a joint report between CIPD and Reed on the inclusion at work and that found that nearly half of the employers had no inclusion or diversity strategy or plan in place. So without tackling this, we really can't start to tackle pay inequality. It's got to go hand in hand with so many other elements, you know, in terms of how how you might manage performance, role evaluation, job profiles, career pathways, you know, all of those types of things have got to go hand in hand with that pay, to pay transparency journey. And also we've got to enable our managers to be more comfortable having candid conversations about pay. Uh, because I agree with your introduction, Nigel, you know, there are still some people who are not happy having those conversations, either about their own pay or about people in their team's pay. Jebba Boulevard, does that chime with your experience? Absolutely. And I think that there's a real temptation to almost look at this in quite a binary way. We're either a very transparent, you know, on the on the extreme end of the scale or we're not transparent at all. And of course, what we know and what um, Charles was talking about um, at the start was there are shades of grey. There are shades of grey in terms of uh, levels of transparency, how how we're transparent. And I think for organisations where this is a very alien concept, to begin just with baby steps on transparency, to start to articulate to employees how pay is set, how you go about kind of determining what pay each role is awarded, how things, how, how the process works is a step towards transparency without necessarily going all out and saying this is what everyone's everyone's salary is and you just figure out where on that continuum it feels like the right place to be in uh, here and now and where on that continuum you are aiming to, to to be towards albeit you know factoring in what else is going on in the in the sort of the wider landscape well quite so because charles cotton there are quite a few examples out there of organizations that uh, have paid quite a high price for uh, pay transparency. I mean, it is a charter to rival organisations to poach talent they want once they know the salaries they need to be. So it, it can be quite inflationary. Not necessarily. I mean, people want to know why they're being paid, what they're being paid, and how that you know, and how their um, efforts are going to be recognised by the organisation. So being transparent about that is 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 important. Now, organisations often are concerned about their staff being poached, but pay isn't the only decision that people think about when they are um, thinking of moving jobs. So it may not. Well, I'm sort of including rewards and uh, conditions along with pay, though I suppose, as you say, it's a bit misleading that we just use the word pay. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you've got to think about... How not only those contexts but you know why people are thinking of of moving as well so yes it's 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 a factor but it's not the only factor in in people's decisions to um to to leave or or join organizations 
Um, and also, if you kind of move from one organization that is very transparent about pay um, or, you know, and, and benefits to an organization that has kind of poached you, but then isn't prepared to be uh, similarly transparent, um, then you may have issues um, later down the line. You may feel that you're, rec you know, you're not being rewarded or recognized. You may wonder, well, I, well what are the people in this organization getting paid? Now, Karen Jackson, I noticed been a few interesting findings people might like to have a look at from Harvard Business School that have been published quite recently. And one finding which surprised me was that in their experience, and this may be in the US, I would imagine, that the pay transparency might actually cut pay because organisations dare not give one person a pay rise if, um, of course, it gets public and they have to give it to everybody else. So is this a, a actually a possibly a sneaky way of holding pay back though of course that's difficult in inflationary times i think that's incredibly difficult in inflationary times but also uh, for me i think there's i'm not sure how that would translate across the pond um, over into the uk for me i see it very much about understanding a view of how we establish what that job's worth is um, whether that's benchmarking externally, whether that's benchmarking internally. Um, but I don't see that as being a negative pay cut. Um, I don't think I've ever experienced that situation, actually, from a praise transparency perspective. I mean, for us, and sort of building on what Gemma said a moment ago, we have a range of pay transparency um, sort of guidelines that we use within Read, uh, And it comes down to where we have our volume roles, uh, we have really clear parameters of this is the salary range if you're performing at a certain level. And then where we have one-off type roles, uh, we are less clear. Uh, but what we will say is this is how at inception of that role we will benchmark. So also it's about saying you don't have to have a one-size-fits-all pay transparency approach within your organisation. You can have a multiple of different approaches that might suit that particular population that, you, that you're looking at. Uh, Gemma Bullivan, can you kind of take that on for us? Just tell us a bit more. You've already talked a little bit about this, but how you work with organisations to start sorting out how they approach this, how they talk to people, and indeed how you should be doing those calculations as to kind of what people are worth. Yes, well, um, there's a number of starting points. Um, sometimes I start with what is your aspiration, you know, but but that's usually informed by what's your challenge. Because uh, when I'm called, usually there's a challenge. So there's a challenge either in terms of uh, attraction and retention, or there's a challenge in terms of wanting to know how much to pay people, regardless of, uh, of, of some of the other pain points. But most often, you have to start with understanding your your job architecture, your roles. Um, it doesn't have to be a really detailed job evaluation exercise, but you do have to have some idea of how the organisation structure has evolved to the point that it's at now and, and therefore what, what are the criteria that you might apply to describing the different levels of roles. Once you've done that, you can then start to look at how you might benchmark externally and the approach that you might take to that. And then you can start to sort of think about how you might um, determine the transparency approach or the way. Let's 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 use a different way of describing this, which is how are you going to start explaining this to employees? Because that's a version of transparency. How can a manager or a, an HR leader 
sit down with that individual and just be able to articulate what's go how how their pay is derived, what their pay um, progression might look like in that role as they as they acquire more skills, perform at a better level, or or seek for promotion. If you can't explain something to an individual in those terms, regardless of your approach to transparency, kind of systemically in the business then then you're going to come unstuck so you do need to have some of those defi- those basic principles really kind of you know well thought through to be able to then help help with that explanation but charles cotton isn't the problem that we're quite wedded to the idea that you get a percentage every year obviously with inflation you know there as i mentioned before there are certain imperatives there but maybe people are not sort of up with the idea of a kind of assessment of the nature of your job, your own uh, potential, and um, how much the job you're doing is worth relative to what's been going on in the world. Well, I think that the issue is obviously pay does cover many aspects, as you say, quite rightly point out, you know, it's the value of the job to the organisation, it represents the cost of living, the going rate, employee performance, achievements, potential, etc. And each of those elements will vary over time and um, there'll be you know one year the cost of living will be less of an issue than um, other times similar you know the going rate so that it's so it's a kind of a balance so each time an organization looks at how much to increase pay it has to kind of consider all those elements as well as well as how much money the organization has to pay and that's why it's important, as was mentioned earlier, about having a reward, you know, philosophy, um, strategy and, and narrative to be able to explain to employees, um, this is why we are paying you what we're paying you. This is what needs to happen, both in terms of what you need to achieve or what the organisation needs to achieve in terms to increase pay, as, as well as, you know, how things may, may, may bear out in the future. So. I think also what's important is if you are going to um, be more transparent, um, you've got to, HR teams need to think about, well, who are you going, you know, who, who you need to decide, you know, who tells, who's going to tell what, uh, to whom, when, why and how, and how much support HR, profession, HR professionals are going to provide to those people, um, either explaining it or those to those people on receiving it so they understand what's being communicated to them. And Karen Jackson, I was struck by something I saw on one of Reed's online pages about all this. Uh, how you respond on pay transparency, you said, may depend on what story your organisation wants to tell. And that's absolutely right, Nigel. It's about uh, bringing to life what it feels like to work for that organisation. And that isn't just about culture uh, and how you feel. That's about where you contextually sit within that organisation. Uh, and for majority of people, they will measure that on a number of things. And one of that is pay. Um, so that absolutely, that compelling story um, absolutely will drive attraction to people, to your organisation. Well, look. A large pay packet might. Well, of course, a large pay packet will. A hundred percent. And and I don't think um, I don't think pay strategy is about large pay packets. It's about being able to provide the context of why your pay is the way that it is, and how that fits with the organisation that that person might be interested in joining. Um, so that's why that compelling story is incredibly important, especially 
in today's recruitment market where, you know, we are quite candidate poor still uh, in today's recruitment market. So being very compelling and having that level of transparency could put you one step ahead of that competitor who's also trying to recruit that same person. And Karen's talking about work context there. Gemma, can you talk a bit more about the impact of transparency as it's introduced into the current way we work? You know, we've got this hybrid working. We thought perhaps some of it might end, but everybody seems very keen on it not ending. Very happy to work from home. Employers have got more relaxed about that. We've got a increasingly globalised workforce. I wonder to what extent local market rates might die out. You know, if we've got more perfect information, you know, I don't know, an HR manager getting 35000 a year in the provinces might find a London counterpart, counterpart was getting 50000 Might we expect those two rates to kind of get a bit closer over time? Is that actually happening? I think it is, and I'm starting to see that with clients that I work with where the question starts to be posed around being able to hire outside of the local area because there is less of a requirement to come into a particular office or to commute on, on a very regular basis. So one longer train journey once or once or you know twice a fortnight is very different to a, a four or five day a week daily commute. And that's starting to put some pressure onto certainly my clients that are in in the north that are starting to compete with 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 salaries elsewhere um, that are typically higher. I think the other the other challenge from a hybrid perspective is I've got some clients who used to compete really well on flexibility and used to actually tell that story as a way of not to. Um, pull salaries down below where they should be, but to almost tell the story of why they don't inflate the salaries or try to match other competitors. But they offer flexibility, they offer options on where and how you want to work. And that has very much equalised, which is actually means that some of these clients that I'm, I'm, I'm working with are really struggling to compete on that point and are starting to have to think about their pay a little more, a little differently, um, because the market that the market has shifted from that perspective. So there's a couple of different, uh, couple of different tensions there going on that are really starting to impact the question of pay. Charles Cotton, do you want to add anything about this uh, impact of how we work now? Because I know you tweet a lot about rewards and things. Yes, I mean, I think earlier on when hybrid working kind of took off during the pandemic, there was a perhaps a, a fear that organizations were going to introduce almost a kind of a two-tier approach to pay. So those um, people they recruited in lower cost areas, they would be offered lower wage rates because their cost of living was lower. But because of the um, tight labor market, um, that hasn't come to pass. So organizations seem to be paying people the same rate irrespective of, of where they're based. Um, leading to pressures that um, Gemma has just been talking about. However, going forward, if there is a kind of, I suppose, if if the labour market becomes more uh, becomes less ta- um, less tight, then perhaps you may start to see organisations reviewing those um, decisions to see whether there is merit in having different um, salary levels depending on where people are working. But there are also issues around that as well. So for instance, equal pay concerns. 
could be a, a could be something that kind of um, restricts that development. And I mentioned at the beginning that uh, when people were polled about their willingness to be open about their own salary, it seemed to be the Generation Zers who were all for transparency. I just wonder whether, uh, General Karen, have you noticed a kind of different attitude in the rising generation of workers? Is that changing things? Well, I think the earlier generations, and I count myself sort of within that, were actually used to it being perfectly fine to be asked not to talk about your pay. And, uh, and you know, when that legislation changed and people were actually, you know, that became unlawful, that that then shifted a culture away from employers sort of wanting that kind of that secrecy to actually not being allowed to insist on that secrecy. And I think as we move through the generations, that 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 veering towards transparency is happening and it's going to get there's going to be more and more of a of a of a need for transparency or a demand for transparency from employees. Because I mean Karen, this is sort of paradox, isn't there? Yeah, many feel still, as we've heard, they do have a right to their own pay privacy, yet they simultaneously they simultaneously want to see what everybody's offering before they get involved in a job interview. It, it absolutely is a, a, a conflict um, there that is playing out. I think at the point of application, you don't understand that business. And like I said earlier, that enables you to understand the context of where the role sits. I think a pay transparency at a personal level outside of generations also has um, you know, a real mixture of impact. For example, it can really drive a whole imposter syndrome side as well. Am I really worth that salary that I'm being paid? And that has a whole ripple effect. And, th and that's not a generational thing. You know, that could be somebody new going into a new role. That could be somebody who's been in a role for ages. You know, so it's also conscious that, yes, there's lots of positives that come with full pay transparency. But let's balance it with there's some clear negatives. And that negative is not just at an organisational level. It's at an individual level as well. And there will be some people, regardless of generation, that are uncomfortable with their personal pay being shared because people may question their worth within their organisation. We've got to be really conscious of that. OK, that seems a great final thought from you. So, Charles Cotton, what would you add uh, just as a sort of final tip, if you like, to organisations or individuals in HR who are really worried about what to do about this? Well, I think not only do you have to kind of think about what you mean by pay and what you mean by transparency and uh, who's going to tell what to whom and what support they need. Another is actually having the data in place to be transparent in the first place. So you've got to pers persuade or make the business case to your organisation that they invest in the HR technology um, that allows the organisation to kind of collect the relevant pay data, to kind of analyse it and then communicate it in the right format to the right people and, and at the right time. And also being able to check whether the data you have is, is correct, because if you are analysing incorrect pay data, then the transparency process is, you know, what, what, what is the point? So, yes, you, you need to make the case saying, well, we want to check the data. We want to have the technology that's going to allow us to do that, as well as then start thinking about things like legacy issues, crafting your, your, your narrative. And, and of course, another issue is around um, data protection. If you are going to be transparent about um, pay salaries, thinking about what implications there are there. So when often you talk about pay, uh, you often talk about reward or, or, or HR teams, but it's so important to also think about 
um, the implications for other parts of the organization. So think about, you know, let's involve the legal team, let's involve the uh, IT team, um, let's involve, um, involve our colleagues in uh, marketing and public affairs. So when we kind of launch our transparency initiative, uh, we've got the right people um, in the room to help us talk about that. And lots to take in there, but I know there's a lot of resources, uh, both from Charles and others on the CIPD website. Uh, and Gemma Bullivant, final thought from you, from your experience maybe on all these uh, tricky pay and reward issues. I think my advice would be to assume that this is coming and it's coming reasonably quickly because the imperative is happening, as you mentioned at the start, from other geographies. And we know that it's the right thing to do. We know that it's a, um, a quite a key lever in, in, in helping with things like gender pay gap. So as Charles said, make the case and get started on sorting the house out, understanding where your outliers are, understanding how you go about sizing roles, figuring out where in the organization you might need to put more attention. So as Karen mentioned earlier, there might be sections of the business that it's quite straightforward sections that need a little more of an individualized approach um, and, and, and get that get that process underway so that, as you mentioned, it can take some time to get to a point where you want it to be, but make the start so that you can actually gradually, um, you know, get closer to where you where you want it to be. Brilliant. Well, what an excellent discussion. Thank you very much indeed. That was Gemma Bullivant. We heard too from Karen Jackson, HR Director at Reed and CIPD's Charles Cotton. I think you've all performed well above expectations for your pay grades. Uh, lots of ideas. Transparency on salary has definitely reached a tipping point. Next month, something different. Artificial intelligence, AI. How do you prepare for its inevitable impact on your organisation? Until then, from me... Uh, it is the real and not AI-generated Nigel Cassidy. And from all of us here at the CIPD, it's goodbye. Goodbye.